Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. All right, Malachi chapter 3, get your sermon notes page out as well. Malachi 3.16, things God loves and remembers. What's your view of God? You get a lot of interesting answers if we uh, submitted that to people and had them put it in writing. Um, Years ago, I clipped something uh, that a third grader in Shula Vista, California named Danny Dutton wrote in response to the question (laughs) or statement, explain God. I know I've shared this before, you might remember some of this, but here's some of what he uh, wrote in response to explaining God, third grader. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so that there will be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies, I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way, he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that up to mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers and things, pray at times besides bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV because of this. Because he hears everything, there must be a terrible lot of noise in his ears. Unless he has thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't go wasting his time by going over your mom and dad's head by asking for something they said you couldn't have. Now skipping down a little ways, he writes... You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Don't skip church to do something you think will be more fun, like going to the beach. That's wrong. And besides, the sun doesn't come out at the beach until noon anyway. And finally, he writes, If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you will be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp, but God can. It is good to know he's around when you're scared in the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown into real deep water by big kids. (laughs) But you shouldn't always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God, writes Danny Dutton. There's two phrases, all that's interesting, but two phrases that really jump out at me in connection with uh, the message today. Number one, where he says, if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. Now just think about that one a minute. And then also think about his other statement. God put me here and he can take me back anytime he pleases. See, those two things go well with our unusual Bible text today in Malachi 3, verse 16. Now, this is... Uh, 
A lot of you may not be as familiar with Malachi, just as with Zephaniah last week. So I'm going to give a quick background of Malachi and what led up to this in chapter 3. The book of Malachi took place during the last days of the Old Testament. And this is 200 years after the time period last Sunday in the book of Zephaniah. And a lot has happened in those 200 years. The nation was carried away into exile because of their sin, just like God had said. Then God brought them back from exile. The city was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. But by the time this was written in 430 B.C., the nation had turned against God once again. There was improper and insincere worship. There was a lot of arrogance and unfaithfulness. The nation was morally polluted and God's name was being profaned in Israel. So God sent his prophet Malachi to confront the nation and frankly to clean house. But in that dark, dark time, there was a small <clears throat> light shining forth from a faithful few people in Israel. And we read about them in one verse. Malachi 3, verse 16, says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. All right, we're going to spend a bunch of time on that in just a minute. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. God noticed these good people and what they were doing. And it says specifically that God listened, and he even had it written down. Now, that's an interesting question for further study, but who, who wrote these things down? It just says, a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. Who wrote it? Well, maybe it was the faithful few and they were journaling about their commitment. I don't know. Maybe it was a prophet. God had write it down. Frankly, maybe it was an angel because it says a scroll of remembrance was written in God's presence. But the point is this. God sees and God knows and God remembers. And if there's anyone you want to make happy, <laughs> it's God. So, here's some questions for you. What puts a smile on God's face in connection with us? What puts a smile on God's face? And what does God approve of and love and remember? Since that's what this verse is talking about. Well, there are three things in this text. And one is quite different from the other two. And that's where we're going to spend probably the first half of our time. So, God loves it, first of all. When we talk with each other. Now, don't miss this. In other words, when we, God's people, talk with each other, God loves it. It says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. God loves that. You know, the first time I read that verse, I figured it was implying that they were praying and God was listening to their prayers. But that's not what it says, not even remotely. God was pleased as he listened to his people talking to each other. King James says they spake often to one another. 
So let's think about four aspects of why God loves it when his people talk to his people. Well, first of all, they talked for fellowship. They talked for fellowship. Go ahead and flip over to Acts 2, because in just a moment, we want, I want us to look at one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture about the importance of God's people hanging out together, fellowship, talking, all that stuff. My friend Victor Knowles put it this way in writing about fellowship. Fellowship is a hearty thing, a happy thing, a healthy thing, a holy thing. You see, fellowship is why Acts 2, or, or uh, Acts 2 talks so much about it because fellowship is so important to God. It's striking to me that right after the day of Pentecost, in the earliest days of the church, and we who are seeking to restore the uh, New Testament, the, the, the church described in the New Testament, it's significant that we look at how did things happen right after the church began. Well, verse 42 tells us, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Four things it mentions that they did regularly, they devoted themselves to in the Lord's early church. The apostles' teaching, in other words, Bible teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and praying. But then it's significant to note in this earliest days of the church that it spins from verse 44 to verse 47 talking about one of those four things, and it's fellowship. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to uh, uh, anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Don't miss that. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And because they did that, it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early believers, the New Testament church, shared life with each other. They did more than just shaking hands once a week on Sunday. Those six verses in Acts mostly praise the way believers lovingly shared and interacted with one another between Sundays in less formal ways. That's what Acts 2 is clearly saying. One thing I like about summers at Bethlehem is that we have more opportunities to restore that Acts 2 biblical pattern through things like our summer connection challenge and things like the activities today. God smiles when we talk and share life. That makes God happy. If you think in terms of a parent looking at their own children, and we've all had both these extremes, a parent or parents are watching their kids argue and pick and fight. That's not a pleasant thought for parents and a pleasant sight. On the other hand, when a parent watches their children um, talk and laugh and play nice to each other, <laughs> that makes parents smile. Well, God's the same. God smiles when we worship together, but God also smiles when we visit after the closing prayer and talk to each other. God smiles when we share the Lord's Supper together, but God also smiles when we laugh together at a church picnic or in the VBS adult food room or around a water slide beside the pavilion. 
God smiles when we pray and are honest with Him and just talk to Him. But God also smiles when He sees you and me share our joys and our heartaches with each other and are truly transparent with each other. So my friends, let's be biblical and talk to each other. God loves when we do that. Here's my question for you. Is God smiling as he watches how much time you spend with other believers? Is God smiling as he watches in the average week how much time you spend with other believers? Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. But there's a second reason they talked. They talked for support. See, these days were tough for believers because it was a morally corrupt society increasingly, much like ours today. And if you look back just a couple verses, verse 13 and 14, it says this, uh, God's speaking to them, you have said harsh things against me. Uh, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? See, their sin was making their society a mess. They were becoming unhappy. Life was getting harder. There were negative pressures because of their sin. And I think these believers were simply sharing life and talking and sharing support so they could all hang in there in a culture that was at a different worldview than them. You see, we need each other. We need flesh and blood support besides the support and presence of the Lord God. I love the little simple story that Dan James uh, shared several years ago about a woman he knew, and I assume uh, from the little he says here that it was an older woman that probably lived alone. He said, Mamie made frequent trips to the branch post office. One day, she found herself in a long line of customers who were waiting for service from the postal clerk. Mamie only needed stamps, so a friend asked her, Mamie, why don't you use the stamp machine? You can get all the stamps you need, and you don't have to wait in line. And Mamie simply explained to her, I know, but the machine cannot ask me about my arthritis. Now, cute, nice, we smile, but there's a powerful point there. That machine cannot ask about her arthritis. Friends, we all, we all need somebody to ask us about our arthritis or our school problem or our job issue or our fair animal or our cancer. We all need that. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. But we also talked to each other, and they did then, for encouragement. These were tough times, as I said, for believers. But we all get frustrated. We all get sick. We all get grieved. We all get discouraged. We all get overwhelmed at times. And the early believers in Thessalonica got discouraged at times. And that's why twice in that little epistle, in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. God says, I know what you're going through, so encourage each other. And then the very next chapter, chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. See, even Jesus needed that in his human nature. You ever thought about that? 
In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was in the desert, God sent angels, it said, to minister to him so he would not be alone. And then it's even more striking to me in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, knowing what was coming in an hour or two in the next day, Jesus was, had a heavy heart. He was going through an incredible emotional time. And you recall how he wanted three of his best friends, his closest friends among the disciples. He goes, I need you to come with me a little further. I need you to be around me. And even though they weren't much help and they fell asleep, Jesus was illustrating that even he needed human beings around him. So how much more, if Jesus needed that, do we need that? So Proverbs 12, verse 25, says, Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. God smiles when you and I offer somebody a smile or a warm hug or a kind word or a helping hand or a gracious compliment. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. We need that. But fourthly, they talked with each other for motivation. Given their circumstances, I am sure they tried to motivate each other at times simply to remain faithful. I mean, all these pressures were against them in a, a culture that was not Christ-focused. And they had pressures to doubt God. And they had pressures to cheat God, because we read about it in chapter 3 here, where people were not bringing their tithes to God. There was insincere worship. There were a lot of people in their culture, chapter 2 says, violating their marriage covenant. You see, sticking together is critical for us to overcome these pressures and temptations in a secular world. We all need to be called to a higher ground. We all need to be called higher. Hebrews speaks to this more than once. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In other words, the opposite of that is if you don't encourage each other, you're going you're to be hardened and, and deceived and drugged down. And then two of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We all need to be called to a deeper commitment. We all need to be called to more meaningful prayer lives. We all need to be called to go the second mile. We all need to be called to improve and to be more effective and to grow and to strengthen weak areas of our lives. We all need a good positive pep talk and a pat on the back once in a while. And we all need a gentle kick in the pants once in a while. So let's spur each other on. That's what God is stressing. So I ask you this question. Is God pleased with the way that you talk to others in the family of God? Is God pleased with the way you talk to others in the family of God? Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. God loves and remembers when we talk with each other. But secondly, and this will be quicker, 
God loves and remembers when we fear God. Twice in this little verse, verse 16, it talks about fearing God. Now, let's tie this with last week in Zephaniah 3. Last week, we read a verse, and at that point I commented, where it said, do not fear, and I said that I've been told that there are 366 times that the Bible tells us in one form or another, do not fear. And folks, we disobey that command far too often. We fear situations, we fear certain people, we fear circumstances, we fear viruses, and we fear the unknown. We get frazzled and frantic and destroy our peace and we destroy our potential in the process. And that's why God tells us so often, do not fear, 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 do not fear. And the irony is, and this is even sadder, we tend to fear everything but the one thing the Bible commands us to fear, and that is God. We're told to fear God <laughs> and basically nothing else. So it says, then those who feared the Lord talk with each other. And those who feared the Lord and honored his name. I think what we've done is we have flip-flopped what God has said. We fear all these other things and not God. And God says, I want you to fear me and not anything else. Now, just a clarification also that's connected with last week's message. We do not have to fear God's wrath or his judgment if our sins have been forgiven through Christ. But we are still to fear God. We are to fear God. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, point A, showing him respect, reverence. I was asked quite a few years ago to, to write an article uh, for the Christ, or standard lesson uh, student commentary or whatever on the omni-God. You know, the, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, all this stuff. And it was all about God's greatness and everything. Here's how I start out the article. Now, listen carefully to my first two statements here. I have good news and bad news. The good news is that many Christians have developed a very personal, conversational relationship with God. The bad news is that many Christians have developed a very personal, conversational relationship with God. <laughs> and then I went on to write this and explain, while an intimate relationship with God the Father is essential to Christian discipleship, there is often a subconscious tendency to bring God down to our own level. A.W. Tozier suggested more than four decades ago that, the, that many of our modern spiritual woes are the result of a loss in today's church of a lofty concept of God. We have made him such a buddy that we brought him down. To, he's basically no longer the God of the Bible. So while we can and should go to God in a very personal, intimate way, and we saw that in Zephaniah 3, we have really strayed outside his will by shrinking him down to being merely our heavenly pal or our celestial buddy. Listen, the God of heaven desires, deserves, and even demands that we have a holy fear of him. A holy fear of him. I have a phrase concordance in my office, and it lists phrases that appear multiple times in the Bible. And it's amazing how many of these fear-related phrases appear in the Bible. Fear the Lord, there's a whole bunch under that. Fear the name of the Lord, a whole bunch under that. Fear your name, a whole bunch under that. Fear God, more under that. Fear the Lord, more under that. Fears God, more under that. Over and over in Scripture. Why don't you go back with me to Proverbs 1, and I want you to follow a quick little sequence here 
through a number of passages in Proverbs, that book of wisdom, which tells us to fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Verse 29, Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, and it describes some consequences. Chapter 2, verse 5, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Chapter 8, verse 13, says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Chapter 9, verse 10, this one really says it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Chapter 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord, notice this, adds years to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. You know, when I was growing up, any of you that are over 50 years of old, maybe even 40, some of you, Remember the time when people in the church would routinely, if they were wanting to pay a compliment to a, a, another Christian they knew, they would say, well, she is God-fearing or he's God-fearing. And that was like a huge compliment to a Christian disciple. They're God-fearing. But you know what? You hardly ever hear that anymore. You hardly ever hear one Christian complimenting another and say, you know, they're God-fearing, which probably says something about our society and the church that we no longer use that expression. See, it basically describes someone who takes God seriously enough to live like God said, <laughs> to be God-fearing. And that brings us to point B. To fear God means to take Him seriously. Many, many do not take Him seriously. Many today do not take hard anything seriously. <laughs> Remember re reading a story, probably made up, uh, about a guy who was in a city one day and he took a cab and they're going through the city and they come up to an intersection and the light turns red and the guy screeches or, or he plows on through the, the, the red light. And the guy riding in there says, what are you doing? You're going to get us killed. You just ran a red light. And he goes, hey, he goes, my brother never stops for red lights. So come up to another intersection and uh, the light turns red. He goes right on through it. The guy says, you're crazy. You're going to kill us. He goes, my brother never stops for red lights. This happened two or three more times, and then finally they come up to an intersection. The light turns green, and the cab driver screeches on the brakes and stops. And he goes, I don't understand this. He goes, you run the red lights, and then when the light turns green, you screech to a halt. The cab driver says, you never know when my brother might be coming through the intersection. <laughs> that was scary when that happened to me, too. So. <laughs> You know, that guy did not take, uh, frankly, anything seriously, not law, not authority, not life itself. But I'm convinced that even in the church today, we often do not take God seriously enough. The fact that he is absolute sovereign Lord of the universe, that he has made his will quite clear to us, that he is judge and ruler and we will stand before him someday and that he's the final authority and we are not. We need frequent reminders that God is real and that God is with us and that God is strong and that God is awesome and that God is in charge. And yes, he will sometimes hold us and carry us like we saw in that incredible passage in Zephaniah 3 last week, but God has not at any point scooted over to make room for you or me on the throne with him.
He never has and never will. He is not our heavenly Santa Claus. He is not our prayer puppet that we just say it and he just dishes the stuff out to us. He is not an ever-tolerant wimp who is oblivious to sin. He is the Lord God of the heavens and the earth. There's a Christian song uh, was briefly popular maybe 15 years ago. I really liked it. I wish I still heard it more. It was simply called, You Are God Alone. And some of the phrases I liked in it was, You are not a God created by human hands. And then I like this one. It said, before time began, you were on your throne. You are God alone. And then this phrase I really loved. It says, and that's just the way it is. God is on his throne, and that's just the way it is. So we need to get off our occasional pride kick and acknowledge that God does not need our assistance in running the universe. He never has and never will. God loves it when we have a healthy, holy fear of him. So I want to ask you, context of everything I've just said, are you a God-fearing person? Are you a God-fearing person? Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So that's our third thing I want us to notice. God loves and remembers when we honor God's name. You see, the people in Malachi's day were not doing that either. Chapter 2 opens up describing what it was like. It says, and now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. He's talking to the, the, the leaders of his people, the priests, and saying, you're not honoring my name. But yet in chapter 3, he had this small group of people who was honoring his name, and God was thrilled. See, but these others had made a mockery of his name. And God had warned about that centuries before in the Ten Commandments, in the Third Commandment, in Exodus 20, verse 7. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Well, a few in Malachi's day, or maybe many of them, had forgotten that. So he praises those who honored his name, who feared the Lord and honored his name, or esteemed his name, the New American Standard says. So how do we do that? How do we honor God's name? First of all, we do it in our life. In our life. We wear God's name proudly and in a worthy way. In other words, our actions do not contradict God's name and God's character or our claim to belong to him. See, God described what that looks like in Malachi 2 by giving the example of, he calls him Levi, and I, I personally don't think it's talking about the man Levi, the one son of, of uh, you know, one of the, one of the patriarchs. Um, but I think what he's doing here is he's giving a picture of, a, of the ideal priest of God, those when they were still faithful before they got unfaithful in his day. So listen to what it says in three of my favorite verses in, in the book of Malachi, verses 4 through 6. And I know it says Levi, and this passage took on a whole new meaning when I had a grandson named Levi, and his parents chose these as his three life verses. Listen to what it says about Levi, and I think this describes the person who honors God's name. 
It says, and you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. What a description of a person who honors God's name, who fears God. It says he revered me and stood in all of his name, and therefore he, was a life, uh, he lived a life of truth and a consistent life, and he fulfilled God's mission. See, when that's true, we honor God's name in our life. But we also honor God's name in the actions, or in the eyes of others, in the eyes of others. Interesting statement is made in Psalm 76, verse 1, when it says, God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. Well, apparently when Psalm 76 was written, God's people were living in a way that made God look good. But that was not the case in Malachi's day. See, this is true, what Psalm 76 one is saying. That's true when we live in a way that brings positive attention to God. But the op opposite is also true. In Roman, Romans chapter 2, verse 24, it quotes two Old Testament passages and describes a time when they were making God's name look bad. It says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There was among the non-Jews, God says, you're making God look bad by how you're living. David, in the Old Testament, feared God. So in Psalm 69.6, David expressed his fear that his bad example might hurt God's name. I want you to look at what David prays here. God, David is so concerned that if he doesn't live right, it's going to make God look bad. So here's what he prays. The Lord, or Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. You see what he's praying? God, don't let my life bring dirt to your name. Don't let the way I live at work or around the community or whatever, or even in the church, don't let it make you look bad. So I ask you this question. Are your actions making God look better? Or worse. I think it's as simple as that. Once we claim we're a follower of Christ, either our actions make him look good or they make him look bad. So let's live a consistent, holy, honorable life that draws positive attention to God. God loves it when we do that, and God remembers it. So Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord <laughs> talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Think about that phrase, a scroll of remembrance. Does that sound like something at the end of the Bible? In Revelation 20, where it starts talking about a book where names are written, a scroll of remembrance. Yeah, Revelation 20, verse 12 says this. Keep in mind that scroll of remembrance. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now look at this, Revelation 20, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now go back to our text and read the last part. It says, A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Now read on. Two groups. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, those people he just described. In the day when I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And then notice this, verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. There's always been basically two groups of people on this planet. Those who serve God, those who don't. Those who follow God, those who don't. Those who love him, those who don't. Those who take God seriously, those who don't those forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and those who are still in their sins. So it comes down to a final question we ask ourselves at the bottom of the page. Is my name written in God's book of remembrance? I, for one, as we prepare to sing our song of decision, I want to commit myself today to being one of those people that Malachi 3.16 describes. One of those people who makes God smile and want to write my name down <laughs> that he knows is going to make him look good in this messed up culture in which we're living. Here's the question. Is my name written in God's book of remembrance? That's what it ultimately comes down to. Those who belong to God, those who don't. Those who have committed their lives to him, those who don't. So as we sing this familiar old decision song, Just As I Am, it's amazing to me, again, we think about God's grace, that he will accept us just as we are. No matter how much we've blown the things that we've talked about today, God in his grace reaches out through the blood of his son and says, I, I, I still want you to come back. I want you to change that. I need you to fix this. I need you to stop doing this. But I just want you to trust me, come to me, and let me help you take care of these things in your life and make you what you ought to be and what I created you to be. So this time each Sunday is a time that we look at ourselves and we realize that just as we are, we can come to this amazing God, just as we are. But, as Peter Marshall once said, but we dare not leave just as we came. If we've truly been in his presence, uh, we're going to make sure there's something different, something better, something more Christ-like in our life because we've gathered here today. So this morning we issue the invitation for each of us to recommit or repent in whatever area we need to, but also if there's someone here who needs to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior for the very first time. You're a sinner just like me, but he accepts us back. And he invites you to come and confess your faith in him and repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ and to live for him. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.